Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I'm Pastor Erwin Raphael McManus, and just wanted to thank you for listening. In case you didn't know, I just released a new book. It's called The Genius of Jesus, The Man Who Changed Everything. And you can order it today at thegeniusofjesus.com. So one of the curious things that has happened over the last couple of years is just to kind of watch the psychological effect of two years of quarantine and COVID and pandemics and all of these different scenarios and how it affects people. How Not only does it affect individuals, but it affects us as a whole. And one of the things that for me has been really interesting is to, to watch different arenas of human experience either thrive or just crash and burn. I mean, the world of technology has gone crazy. Uh, during the whole quarantine time when businesses were shutting their doors, technology was opening their doors. I mean, movie theaters have just absolutely crashed. And so something we thought would always be a part of our culture, just going to the movies. Now, if you actually even go, you have the whole theater to yourself, right? But, but then it, it creates massive advances in technology. I mean, without the quarantine, would we have this extraordinary life-giving, world-changing app called TikTok, right? I mean, you know, and so you can see there, there, there are good things that happen and, and, and odd things that happen. And, and one of the things that for me has been really interesting is that before on a global scale, I would travel across the world and I would speak at conferences and speak at, at uh, churches and different things like that. And, and then the, when COVID hit, it's just as if the church disappeared across the world. But just like technology emerged, something else emerged. 99.9% of the places that I go now in the last two years, they're, they're all like business environments. Mostly entrepreneurs, um, pioneers, creators in technology or other domains where um, they're trying to take advantage of this moment. So while everyone's on one end going, the world is falling apart and let's just hold on for dear life, there's this other group of people going, we have the opportunity of a lifetime. There's very little competition since no one's trying. This is the moment we can actually create. And what's odd to me is that the narratives kind of become almost rhythmic. You start hearing this narrative in the church. This is where you come because you're, you're full of anxiety and stress, because you're depressed, because you're anxious, because you're afraid. And so you go to church to get therapy. And some of you, this is, this is your free therapy. Just come and you're hoping you can get just a little bit of help to get over some of this anxiety and, and fear and stress. But then I would go into this other domain with just thousands of entrepreneurs and, and business owners and they would just be talking about how they're going to change the world and, and create a new future and have these incredible opportunities. And, and after a while, I started going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Which, which one of these spaces is Jesus in? And, and which one of these spaces are motivated by money? And frankly, the people with money seem to be more excited about the future than the people with Jesus. So I started going, wait a minute, somehow I need to bring the conversation that we're having in there over here. Because I know that it's really important to help you heal. There's some of you here, and what you need more than anything in the world is to find some healing. Now, I don't want to diminish that. There's some of you here, you're just barely making it through the day. You're, you're, you're suffocating from fear and anxiety and distress. And you need to have a place where you can find encouragement and inspiration and healing and help. But I don't want you to, to just get better. I want you to do better. 
See, I, I don't want this space to be, oh, I look for God because I need God as my oxygen so that I don't die. See, I think you need God to actually be the adrenaline so that you can fully live. And what I would like to do today is just maybe press you just a little bit. And, and I know it's hard, especially when someone feels like, man, I'm barely making it. Don't, don't, don't ask me to be more. But the problem is if, if everyone just keeps saying, hey, it's going to be okay, don't worry, don't worry, you're going to get stuck in your cocoon. Because what this last two years feels like to me is like a cocoon. And the odd thing about a cocoon, of course, is that it's a really safe place if you're a caterpillar. But it's a very limiting place once you become a butterfly. Now, I know the metaphor of a butterfly feels kind of feminine. Right? It's a butterfly. It's beautiful. But I think we underestimate butterflies. Because, see, butterflies have to come to a psychological decision to not be stuck in the cocoon. I mean, they've never seen the outside world. They don't know what's out there. All they know is the darkness of that tight space. And it would be so easy to say, you know, I think I'm just going to stay here. I mean, really, they have wings, but do you really have wings if you've never flown? Or is it just sort of an illusion of wings? Even with children, you know, our daughter Mariah now has a, a daughter, which is so strange. It's almost like inception kind of thing. And, <laughs> and so now we have Juno, and, and I know it's hard for Kim to not try to be Juno's mom. Because now we're grandparents, and so we have no power. And no control. And, and, and one of the things that, that you do with the baby is that you swaddle them. You, you wrap them up super, super tight, which feels to me oppressive. It, it does. It feels wrong. I, I know psychologists, oh, no, no, they like being swaddled. Like, let that baby go. Like, you, you can't move her arms, can't move her legs. But you know what's odd is at first they, they, they struggle a little bit. But once they're swaddled up really tight, they just acquiesce. They just go, oh. I belong here. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing when it's an infant, but, but some of you have become comfortable being swaddled as adults. Some of you are still in a psychological infantile position. Say, I do not want the danger of being unwrapped or the freedom of it. And the cocoon that we've lived in the last two years has allowed us to feel comfortable with anxiety and with fear and with stress and with doubt and even with apathy. But it takes not just physical strength for that butterfly to begin pressing against the cocoon. And I don't really understand the, the psychological complexities of butterflies. It's not really my domain. But it takes some kind of psychological energy to go, I refuse to stay here. I mean, think about it. That butterfly has no idea what's outside of that cocoon. There could be a bird right there waiting. <laughs> Short life, right? It's safer inside of the darkness of the compressed space. And some of you, you want your faith to be a cocoon. You want Jesus just to keep swaddling you or strapping you tight, holding you tight, so that you don't feel the danger of adulthood. But eventually, you have to realize that your parents are holding you back. They're strapping you up, not for you, but for them. Because once you figure out how to use all those limbs, the whole game changes. And the more you use those limbs, and then you figure out how to use all the other aspects of who you are, you become an adventure, breaking every boundary, walking past every 
line of opportunity to discover new territories. So you're designed to explore. You're designed to discover. You're designed to be fueled by curiosity and adventure and courage. But if you're not careful, you can actually be slowly and subtly brought to accept a life where you settle for safety and security. And I think this moment in history, faith looks a lot more like a place where you can be safe than a place that makes you dangerous. So I, I just get going back to this passage in my mind that has shaped me so many times over the years. And if you've been a part of Mosaic, you know this passage. If you're new, it might be new to you. But there's this moment in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, who's the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus, identifies wisdom that actually astonishes him. So let me read in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Solomon writes, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man who was poor but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man, so I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. I always find this story to, to be so provocative. I mean, he doesn't give us a lot of the details. He just gives us the overarching narrative. I wish he gave us a little more of the inside information about how all this happened. But what you can know is that, that when Solomon stumbled on this moment in history, it astonished him because this man, we don't know his name, we don't know who he is, we don't know his story, we don't know his background, we don't know how he happened to be that person in that moment in history that set an entire city free. But what we do know is that he was almost the shadow self of Solomon. See, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, but he had everything available to him that any human being ever needed to succeed. So Solomon always had wisdom with wealth. Nice combination. Wisdom with power. Wisdom with fame. Wisdom with position. And so Solomon would never know what the line actually was. See, did he advance? Did he succeed? Did he accomplish because of his wisdom? Or was it because of his power? Or his wealth? Or his fame? See, Solomon was one of the first trust fund kids. He never experienced life without. All he knew was entitlement. He was the son of King David. He was given the greatest empire that Israel would ever know. He ruled at the pinnacle of Israel's influence, its power, its wealth, its fame. His peers were queens and kings, and they all admired him. And he had wisdom. But now he discovers wisdom. In fact, he says, I saw an example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. By the way, if you're the best at something and someone impresses you, that's impressive. So when someone is the best at something and then they're impressed by someone in that same domain, that same field, you should stop and, and, and reflect and pay attention to what is being seen. So Solomon sees wisdom that astonishes him. 
And the reason it astonished him is because he was able, for the first time, it was almost like a, a social experiment. He was able to see how much wisdom could accomplish when you have nothing to your advantage. Have you ever felt like the reason you're not achieving what someone else is achieving, the reason you're not stepping into your greatness the way someone else is stepping into their greatness, the reason you're not as successful or as wealthy or as famous or whatever as someone else is because they got advantages you didn't get? Have you ever had that sort of what was me kind of moment? If I just had what they had, if I knew who they knew, if I'd been given what they'd been given, then I could be as successful as them. See, but the moment you enter into a relationship with Jesus, all that victimization has to find its way out the back door. Because here's a poor man who, by the way, his resume is really under-impressive. Verse 14 says, there was once a small city with only a few people in it. Well, at least you have less competition, right? But in that small city with only a few people in it, there was a man who was poor. So in a small city with very few people in it, he found his way struggling all the way to the bottom. I mean, one of the interesting things, the interesting things about LA is that people from all over the world come here, from small towns everywhere. Some of you are from Iowa, Idaho, <laughs> Ohio, and all the other Midwest cities that sound the same, or countries, or states, whatever they are. And, <laughs> and you come from a small town, not Boise but some small town that thinks Boise is a city. And, and you were the best looking guy in your high school. And you came to LA because you knew you were God's gift to women and to the world. And you came to LA and every guy working in every restaurant, serving every cappuccino, has the same washboard stomach you have. And all of a sudden, you were once the best-looking guy, now you look pretty average. Because good-looking is just average here. And homecoming queens come here from all over the world. From Wyoming and Michigan and Kentucky. And you were the most beautiful girl in your entire school, but now you look like every other girl who's also the most beautiful girl from her school. Sometimes it can just be frustrating. I just want to go back to a small town with ugly people. Right? I just, I just, I want to go back and be beautiful again. Look, we don't say this out loud. We all think it. When I go back to El Salvador, I'm tall. I am. I go to Sweden. They go, oh, it's nice to meet you. When I go to El Salvador, they go, you can't be from here. I am. You know? I could have played basketball. But no, I had to come here. Where the average height of women is taller than me. And Solomon is now comparing him not against the fools, but against the wisest. And he sees the wisest man he'd ever known. And the only reason he could identify that wisdom is the backdrop was no advantage at all. So if you're here and you have great dreams, huge aspirations, if you want God to do something extraordinary in your life, but you feel like you've been under-resourced, you're at a disadvantage, you, you started 
late in the game, I want you to realize that that, that, that breakout moment where you begin to live the life you're created to live, it's just waiting for you. So there was a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built a huge siege work around it. We don't know why, but some king decided to conquer this small town, build a fortress, an army around it, let no one out, no one in, and took control over the city. And, and what you can know, even though the story doesn't go into detail, is that all the warriors, all those young men who prepared all their lives to defend their city were probably mostly dead. Wives and children were now widows and orphans. Their blood would be soaked into the dirt of the streets, and the stillness and quiet of the night would be broken by the crying and howling of, of loss and despair. There was no hope. Anyone who could set them free was now gone, either dead or captive. And why would you think this poor man, who no one ever even knew, they, they never knew his name, they didn't remember his name before or after, how could this poor man set his entire city free? See, I, I know this, that when, when you step into a relationship with Jesus, God begins to place in you a calling bigger than you. He begins to pull you in the direction of a destiny that's bigger than you. He begins to give you a vision that's bigger than you. And, and no matter how big or awesome or incredible you may have thought you were, the moment you begin to live in relationship with God, you start feeling really small. Not because God makes you feel small, but because the dream is so big that it overwhelms you. I want you to know that, that you, you will never step into your future until you're willing to stand alone. See, one of the things this moment reminds me of is that there was just one person that God used to create a revolution that set an entire people free. So somewhere at the end of the story, everyone had to be involved. But at the beginning of the story, no one was involved except the one person who refused to live with the status quo. So there's one person decided that their bondage was not acceptable. One person decided that freedom was possible. And this is the way the world changes. It's the way the future is created. It's the way history is carved into the human story. One person decides that the world must change. It doesn't happen through consensus. It doesn't happen because everyone agrees. In fact, if you're trying to move forward into your calling, into your destiny, into your future, waiting for everyone to agree with you, you're never going to get there. And by the way, if you've never had to stand alone, it means you're always standing in the crowd. And one of the most, I think, frightening things for a human being is when you realize that first step into your future is a very lonely one. Now, I know what I'm supposed to say. I'm supposed to say, you never step into the future alone because God's always with you. It's just not that helpful. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I, it's Sunday. I'm supposed to tell you, and my time is not up. <laughs> I'm supposed to tell you, oh, don't worry, because whenever you take that step into the future, God's always with you. But here's the problem. See, I, I, I know this after decades of walking in relationship with Jesus. You can love God with all of your being, love God with all of your heart, and still feel terribly alone. And sometimes no one bothers to tell you this. That in fact, when you begin to follow Jesus, when you begin to trust God with your life, you may feel more alone than you've ever felt before. 
Because when you're not following Jesus and you're just following the crowd, you're never alone. But you are deeply lonely. But if you're going to step into the future God has for you, not only are you not going to have people cheering you on, you're going to have people telling you you're wrong. You're going to have people telling you you're out of your mind. You're going to have people telling you that you're betraying them by choosing to become more. Let me tell you, whenever you decide to become more, when you decide to be a better human being, it's crazy. I mean, who would ever be against you becoming better? Just ask an alcoholic whose friends are alcoholics. Ask a user whose friends are users. Ask someone who's an abuser whose friends are abusers. You see, the moment you decide to become a better human being, all your friends that you've been living in agreement with, you now become an indictment that they can change too. And so they're not going to be for you because the moment you break those chains, they don't have an excuse to stay a captive. So you have to decide. You're going to step into your future even if it means you're stepping alone. Even if it means that you're walking away from everyone in your life right now. And you have to trust that God's going to bring new people in your life who are going to cheer on the new you. I'm telling you, even from a business perspective, there is no innovation, no advance, no idea, no creation that ever happens in consensus. It happens because someone is almost driven to madness that this must happen, that this can happen. And, and they all think you're as insane as an entrepreneur trying to get to Mars. Because no one's done that before. It seems ridiculous, it's absurd, I'm telling you, everything we have ever done as a species, as human beings, that has ever made the world better has been seen as ludicrous. Impossible, insane. What's going to mark your life? That you just do what everyone else does after they've done it? Are you surrendering your uniqueness for acceptance? That first step into your future is going to be a lonely one. And even though you actually won't be alone, you will feel alone. And the reason you'll feel alone is the people that actually will cheer you on, they're already in the future waiting for you. And you don't even know they're there. And all the people that you've trusted, all the people you've believed in, all the people that you've looked to for affirmation, they're the ones that are going to be saying, what are you doing? Why are you leaving us behind? There was a poor man who set his entire city free, but it began with one person who refused to accept the status quo and said, no, we will not remain slaves. We will be free. What have you accepted in your life that is beneath you? When will you find the courage or maybe the anger to say, I was not created to live like this? You could swaddle me when I was an infant, but you better let me breathe now. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to walk. I'm going to run. I'm going to live. I'm going to go wild because I'm free. But he does say, now there lived in that city a man poor, but wise. That's an awkward sentence structure. You should say there was a wise man who was poor. But I actually think the poor part stood out to Solomon more. He had seen wisdom before, 
every day when he looked in the mirror. He had just never seen poverty like this, where wisdom still guided the narrative. But there was a poor man. I, I just think this is so important because we're even in a cultural moment right now where it, we're almost believing this, if you're rich, you're evil. If you're poor, you're good. And by the way, it's part of what's accentuating the theft and violence in our culture. Because if you believe people who have are evil, then they took it from you, and now you can take it from them, because it's just quid pro quo. And we need to be careful, because we can actually begin to make failure a virtue, apathy a virtue, fear a virtue. And you see, this story begins with someone who's poor, but it doesn't end with their poverty. It ends with their impact on the world. But here's the beautiful thing. Just like your future will never happen until you're willing to take that first step alone, I want you to realize that you will never be limited by your lack of resources. You will not be limited by what you don't have. I know that's double negative, but that's okay, because it creates a positive. You will not be limited by what you don't have. A lot of times what happens when you start to have a dream, the first thing that begins to happen is you start realizing everything you don't have to make that dream happen. You ever done that? Oh, I want to do this. And you realize, oh, it requires this. And here's, here's the reality. People who have what you want didn't start with what you want. And, and it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're here and you're, you aspire to have wealth or aspire to have fame or aspire to have impact or influence. I'm not even dealing with the right or wrong of all that. I'm just telling you that if you have a dream and someone else has already achieved it, you will lie to yourself by saying, yeah, but it was easy for them. And the truth is that every great story of accomplishing something great virtually always begins with the person going, wow, I had nothing. And here you have a man who was poor who set an entire city free. So I don't know how big your vision is. But I imagine it might be a little smaller than setting a whole city free. If God can use one person to set an entire city free having nothing, what do you think God can do with you? Have you been limiting God by what you don't have? It's just funny. Oh, my gosh. Almost 40 years ago when I was a young man, my wife and I, uh, we're living in a tiny little borrowed house in an inner city area. In fact, one day, my wife saw people stealing like televisions and stuff from the store behind us, going through our backyard as a getaway spot. It's a really fun space to live in, very, very textured. And, and uh, Aaron had just been born, and, and we didn't have a room for him, so his crib was in the living room. And, uh, and I had just um, lost my job. I would say I, I resigned right after I was fired. And I don't need you. I don't need this. And, and so I had a wife and a brand new baby. And I, I had this old vanilla-looking computer. And if you know those first ones that you see like in the old retro movies and stuff, like this old, and you know, where you play Pong on it. And, and, uh, and I had this old borrowed computer and I put it in the living room and I started my organization. Typing it in. McManus Enterprises for global impact. And my wife, Kim, who's very pragmatic, walked through and saw the name of the company. It was McManus Enterprises for global impact. <laughs> We're in a borrowed house in the ghetto. <laughs> really? And I said, sounds better than local influence. 
And, uh, and I remember the first leadership meeting I had, I invited all these leaders to come, and I launched my company, and I told them everything we are going to accomplish in the world, and one guy just finally stood up and goes, how much money do you have? I said, I don't have any money, so I have unlimited capacity. <laughs> he goes, okay. See, I think for most of us, what limits us, what limits you, is not what you don't have. It's what you have. Because you think what you have is all you have. And it really is what you don't have that gives you the freedom. See, once you have nothing to lose, you have everything to gain. See, well, once you start measuring your life, not by, okay, I have this, so God can use this. You go, no. See, God doesn't work with what you have. He works with what you don't have. And it's really this wonderful thing that, that when you come to the place in your life, you go, okay, God, if you're going to give me a, a God-sized dream, I should not expect God-sized resources at the same moment. See, a lot of oh, if I just had this, I could do this. Nah, you'll never do it. And some of you are going, well, one day I'm going to do this. I just have to build up this, or I have to get there. Now, if, it's, if you don't do it now, it's probably not going to happen later. See, the reality is that there's no perfect time. There's no right time. There's just time. And if you don't move forward to live the life God created you to live, who's going to do that for you? No one is responsible for you except you to live the life God created you to live. It's up to you. And so I read this, I go, I just love this. A poor man that no one even remembers. In fact, it, this really bothered Solomon. He says, but nobody remembered that poor man. That bothered Solomon. Solomon wanted to make sure the world remembered him. How do you set a whole city free and no one remembers you? So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words were no longer heeded. What's the point of doing something so great if no one knows how great you are? <laughs> See, if your goals in life are wealth, power, and fame, you have terrible goals. Those are elusive. They're like a vapor that will leave you empty. They're beautiful outcomes. Don't, don't misread me. I, I hope you have wealth, power, and fame. I just hope they were never your goals. I hope they're the outcome of you doing good in the world. He lived to set a city free. He never worried about if anyone knew who he was. And you'll never be limited by what you don't have. See, it, there'll never be a point where God goes, oh, I wanted to use you, but... You're not rich enough, or you're not bright enough, or you're not talented enough. You're not good enough. Oh, I wanted to use you, but your past is a mess. You really blew it in 2006. See, guys ever look at you going, oh, I would use you, but you have this deficiency. See, I have a sense that the person God really has a hard time using, the person comes, God, look at everything I have. What do you want to do? Because, you see, if you have more resources than you have vision, you have the wrong vision. If you have God's dream for your life and God's calling for your life and God's destiny in your life, you will never have enough because you'll always find yourself in a deficit because that's the space God fills. I, God, I want to work in the space of what you don't have. But there is one other thing that really strikes me. Now, there lived in that city a man poor but wise, but wise, but wise. And he saved his city by his wisdom. How do you do that? I want to know, don't you? Solomon, write a little longer. Explain to us what he did. I want to know what that wisdom looks like, don't you? 
See, because we want a five-step plan for how wisdom works. Right? We, we want the five steps where wisdom will set a city free. I get that all the time. People ask me all the time, even for today. Could you just give us practical steps? What to do? See, I, I'm convinced the reason God doesn't give us that is because you would imitate those steps all your life rather than actually seeking wisdom. See, wisdom isn't like math. You can know math. Two plus two equals four. Wisdom is not like geology. So you know what is gold or silver or copper. Wisdom is not like geography. There's London, there's Paris, there's Tokyo. Wisdom is not information. It's essence. See, the only thing that will ever hold you back from God doing his greatest work in your life is not what you have, but who you are. See, what God is actually trying to work in each us, each of us is, he's trying to make us that person. Or even in poverty, we are never absent of wisdom. But wisdom isn't a step-by-step -step because life is always changing. Wisdom comes out of the essence of who God makes you. It's out of the person you've become. And when you live in intimacy with God, when you live in intimacy with Jesus, his wisdom becomes who you are. It's not just something available to you. It is something that is an extension of you. I wonder if you're spending as much energy on who you're becoming than what you're accomplishing. Because who you are is going to be the measure of your life. Because who you are will create the world around you. I remember years and years ago, I had a friend who had ridiculous wealth. I don't remember if it was millions or billions, but you know, after a certain point, what's the point, right? And, and he had so much wealth and then he lost it all. And you know, I, I've, never, I've never known the pain of losing billions. I would love to, and, uh, but I've, I've never known that pain, right? You know, the devastation of it. And, and I remember sitting, getting coffee, which I paid for. And, uh, and I remember him saying, I, I don't know what to do. And I said, when you started your company and you grew it to whatever, hundreds of millions or a billion dollar company, what did you start with? He goes, oh no, you understand, I started with nothing. I said, you started with nothing? He goes, nothing. Said, you didn't even have experience. He goes, no, you'd never even made a million dollars, so you didn't even know how to do that. He goes, no. So you made your first million without any experience on how to make a million, yes. And your first 10 million with no experience of how to make 10 million, he goes, yes. Oh, we just kept blowing up. I said, so now you've lost everything but you don't have nothing. He goes, now you have who you've become on that journey. See, back then, you didn't know how that felt. You didn't know what that looked like. You didn't know what kind of person it required, but now you do. What they could not take from you is who you've become on this journey. So even though it feels like you started with nothing, you actually started with everything you need because you have more than you had when you succeeded the first time. See, I think a lot of us, we want Jesus to give us our five-step plan or steps for becoming who you should be. And he's, nah, it's not like that. It's about you focusing on letting Jesus make you the person you were created to become. And to trust that out of your essence will come the wisdom that you need when your city needs you to set them free. Oh, by the way, you know what can feel the same as a cocoon? A tomb. 
See, some of you haven't been cocooning. You've been tombing. You just died to this life. You just gave up on your future. You gave up on your dreams. You gave up on the better version of you. And you've been dead, buried. But the good news is that Jesus specializes in resurrections. And if you're here in this moment and you're just done existing, I mean, you do need Jesus to heal you, but you need him for way more than that. See, you, you may need therapy, and that's a good thing, but you know what you need more than that? You need purpose. See, you may need to be healed from the wounds of your past, but you know what you need more? A vision for your future. I do not want church to be the place where you come to get swaddled. We come back into the cocoon and go, oh, yeah, it's safer here. I'm going to do the best I can to crush every cocoon that you ever come out of so you can never go back to who you were. It's time to roll the stones away to let Jesus recreate you, to make you who you were always created to be, and to give you the courage and the faith to step into the future that is waiting for you. Would you just bow your heads with me just for a moment? Maybe you feel as insignificant as a poor man from a small town with only a few people in it that no one knows, no one remembers. Maybe that's how insignificant you have felt or that you feel right now. But I want you to know that God created you with intention, with purpose. God created you to be an instrument of creating the good and the beautiful. God created you out of his imagination. He's waiting for you to have the courage to take that step into a future only he can give you. If you're here right now and you've never crossed the line of faith, if you've never trusted Jesus with your life, but you're tired of the struggle by yourself, you know you need Jesus. You know you need forgiveness. You know you need freedom. You know you need life. I want you right now just to whisper these words to him. Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, just tell him, Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, Jesus, I give you my life. This can be your breakout moment. This is the moment Jesus will set you free from your past and you'll begin to step into your future. If you just prayed that prayer with me, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to pray for you, and I, I, but I want you to acknowledge that this is your moment. If you prayed and gave your life to Jesus, would you just hold up your hand right now? I want to see you right now. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful. Anyone else? Jesus, I give you my life. Just hold your hand up. Hold it high. Don't be afraid right now. Everybody here is for you. This is your moment. Beautiful, beautiful. Father, I pray for those in this moment have crossed the line of faith, have given their lives to you. I pray that you would just wrap them up in your love. Let them know that they belong to you, that you will never leave them. You'll always be with them. The future is waiting for them even now. With your heads bowed and eyes closed. There's some of you here. You came in already believing in Jesus, but you did not believe in your future. You came in believing in Jesus, but you've given up on being a better version of you. You came in believing in Jesus, but you've been trapped in the cocoon of fear and anxiety and doubt and depression. And you need to make this your breakout moment. Say, Jesus, I need you in your power to set me free. 
so that I can step into the future that you have for me. If you're here, you'd say, I've been trapped and I'm ready to move forward. But I want you to do something right now that's a little, takes a little courage. I want you to say, that's me. I've been hiding in the cocoon and I need Jesus to come and set me free. And I commit right now to let Jesus take me into his future. If that's you, I want you to stand right now and say, I'm making this my breakout moment. Jesus, I need to be free. I'm giving you my life completely. I'm putting my trust in you. I want the future you have for me. I want to pray for you that you would have courage right now. I want to pray for you that you would experience him breaking the chains of your past to let you walk into your future right now. So anyone else, beautiful. Right now, this is your moment. If your heart is stirring, if you feel anxious because you know it's you, just stand. The distance between sitting and standing can change your life right now. There are a lot of steps you're going to have to take alone. Here, you're taking one together. Right now, anyone else? Beautiful. Pastor Joe, would you come up here with me? I just want you to see the people standing. These are the people who are saying to you, Pastor, we're ready to move into the future. We're going to be free from fear. Father, I thank you for those who are standing this moment, the courage it takes, the resolve, the honesty. And I pray, God, that right now they would literally experience the breaking of chains in their life. Whatever their past has brought them, whatever fear or doubt, anxiety, depression has haunted them, I pray that today they would find freedom to move into their future. That they would once again believe that they can be a better version of themselves. They create a better life, a better future. I pray, God, they would begin to experience life without limits, for you are the limitless God. I pray that you give them a vision, a dream so big it would terrify them, that they would have to stay close to you to live the life you've created them to live. And I thank you, Jesus, that even when we take that first step, that we so oftentimes feel so alone, that the truth is that you bring us together so that we never have to walk alone again. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic. Your sacrifice makes this podcast possible and creates life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading this message around the world by going to mosaic.org give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.